We're turning this morning to Genesis, please, and Genesis chapter 12, taking a few readings throughout the book of Genesis, and then we're going over into 1 Kings in chapter 18. Genesis chapter 12, please. Just for a number of verses, then we're going for a number of other readings throughout the book of Genesis, and then over to 1 Kings in chapter 18. Genesis chapter 12, and commencing to read at verse 6. And Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Mori, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis and verse number 18, please. Chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 18. Just the next chapter. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Chapter 22, please. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. Verse 9. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Final reading, please, in 1 Kings in chapter 18. 1 Kings in chapter 18. And commencing to read, please, at verse number 30. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar, the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, 
and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four bars with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening or the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they did say, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Father, we turn again to thee this morning and we ask, O gracious God, that thou will come. We cast ourselves, Lord, completely upon thee. And we ask, Lord, in these sacred moments that we have together, we ask, O God, that thou will come. We pray for the same one that moved so many years on the Mount of, Cal of Carmel, the one who we've been reading about here whenever this man of God stood and confronted the, the need of the nation. And we ask, O oh God, this morning that thou will come and move in our midst and I give myself to thee, Lord. I have nothing to offer these people this morning. And I pray, O oh gracious God, that thou will come and fill and cleanse and anoint this vessel and may your word, O oh gracious God, have a resting place in all of our heart. We pray, Lord, that you'll put a covering around this hall. We pray for those angels of fire, that they, Lord, would put a protection around us today. And, O oh God, above all, that we would be conscious of thy divine presence. We ask it in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. In light of what has been happening here, down by the hill, the river, and the valley over the last number of weeks. But I have certainly been conscious of a stirring among the people of God. I've been conscious of those that for many years, maybe, who have sat on the periphery and even sat on the sidelines, and for many years maybe haven't been exercised in the place of prayer. But over the last number of weeks that I have observed them coming in, maybe on a Monday night or on a Wednesday night, or even on a Sunday afternoon, and that would indicate to me that, that God is beginning to move and stir among the people down here in the lifeboat. In light of that, I want to preach a message this morning uh, for you and I to maintain our walk with God. Two things that are essential in the life of every true born-again believer this morning. Two things that are essential for you and I to stand in these last dark closing days of time. Paul said to young Timothy that the last days 
would be perilous days. They're dark days. They're difficult days. They're demonic days. They're days of deception. And yet in the midst of that crucible of evil and in, in the midst of that darkness, God has a group of men and women that he wants to stand for him to hold forth and to shine bright even in these last closing days of time. The two things that I want to leave before you this morning that have burnt in my heart and if you and I as believers this morning are going to fulfill our high and holy calling whatever gifting the Lord may have given to us, whatever area of the body he wants us to minister in and where he wants to use us, if we're going to be vessels that are sanctified unto honor and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work, there's two vital components that you and I need. The two vital components that I want to lay before you this morning is the altar and the fire, the altar and the fire. Sadly today, both of them, it's very, very seldom do you ever hear it mentioned. Very, very seldom do you ever see them played out in the lives of God's people. And yet if you and I are going to succeed in the Christian life, if you and I are going to go through with God, and as we've been singing this morning, that we will see the divine hand of God lifting the floodgates, we will need again to get back to the altar, and we need again to get back to the fire, to rebuild the broken altars. You know, my dear people, I want to say, not only do we need to rebuild the altar in the house of God, we need to rebuild the altar in our own home. We need to rebuild the altar in our own heart where you and I as individuals would get serious and real with the Lord. This man, Elijah, as he climbed the slopes of Mount Carmel, he came to what was a broken down altar. It had been used before, but now the stones were scattered. They were no longer in the position that they used to be. It had been a long time since the fire had fell. It had been a long time since the glory of God had come down on Carmel. And here this man of God, as he challenges the powers of darkness, one man with God, he climbs the slopes of Carmel and he sees the stones that are scattered and one after another he starts to build. He repairs the altar that was broken down. I wonder this morning, my dear people, is there individuals here and there's an altar that you need to repair? It's been a long time since the glory has come down. It's been a long time since there's been that fresh encounter with God. It's been a long time since you stood there and there you fellowshiped with the Lord alone. Oh, my dear people, to rebuild and repair the broken down altar. The altar is a place that is a place that is a sacred place. It's a place where men and women of the Old Testament, they got away from everyone else. They got away from everything else. 
They turned their television off. They, they took away their iPad and they, they turned off their phone. They got away from their spouse and they got away from their children. They got away from their work companions and they would get alone somewhere. Sometimes it was on the top of a mountain. Sometimes it was down in the depths of the valley. Sometimes it was by the seashore. Sometimes it was by the riverside. But there they would begin to raise the altar. And there was one thing that they had in mind. I need to meet afresh with God. Oh, my dear people, the altar is a sacred thing where there's the fresh oil of God comes upon the soul where we lose sight of everyone else and all of the things that would occupy our mind. And there we raise the altar to the Lord, whether in our heart or whether in our, in our home. And they did as James said. They were men and women that drew nigh unto God. And as a result of that, God did draw nigh unto them. I want to encourage you this morning, my dear people, Oh, that every one of us would be men and women that would draw again and again. We would draw near to him. And as a side effect of that, he would draw near unto us. You remember Jacob, that young man that was on the run from the circumstances of life. He had a broken heart. All his dreams seemed to be shattered. He put for a pillow a stone. And there he looked into the dark, starry night and he fell asleep. And suddenly the Lord came. And my, it was Bethel, the house of God. And whenever he, uh, Jacob rose, you remember how he, he anointed the stone. He raised an altar unto God. A place where the Lord drew near. A place where God took a divine dealing in my heart. A place where God no longer was a name on a page, but he was an experience in my life. And there Jacob raised the altar unto God. Oh, I ask you again, how long has it been since you've raised the altar? The altar is not only a sacred place. The altar is a significant place. You know, whenever the flood had subsided, you remember whenever Noah, how he opened the door, and there they went out of the ark, a different world. The environment had changed. But whenever Noah came out of the ark, the very first thing that Noah did, the Bible says he raised an altar. That was the first thing in his mind. That was the first thing that was tugging on his heart. That was the only consuming passion as he came out of the ark, not to see the different scenery, not to see what effects the flood had in the world. He wasn't interested in that. But oh, he said, I need to raise the altar. I need again a fresh encounter with God. Whenever the children of Israel come through the Red Sea, in Exodus chapter 7, 17, it was there just as they went past the border, just as they went beyond the, the, the periphery of the sea. It says that Moses, he built an altar. Whenever Moses was up on Mount Sinai, those 40 days and 40 nights where he was in the presence of God, my, after the Ten Commandments, the first thing that God talked to Moses about 
was an altar. The first thing that Baziel, that man that had to build all of the great furniture, the tabernacle, he had to build the Ark of the Covenant. He had to build and make the linen curtains. He had to make the sockets of gold. He had to make the table of showbread. But the first thing that he made, and he made it with the wisdom of God, was an altar. The first thing that the children of Israel did as they came over Jordan 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in barrenness, 40 years in unbelief, 40 years of no new victory, 40 years of monotony. The first thing in Joshua chapter 8, whenever they went past the city of Ai, there Joshua raised an altar. Oh, there is something in his heart I need to get back again. There's something that is drawing me to a fresh encounter with God. And Joshua there, even after the, the great victory of Jericho, he had to build the stones and raise an altar unto God. And oh, there was the fresh encounter. You know, Gideon, that young man, the very first thing that God told Gideon to do before he took on the armies of the aliens, before he stood with his 300 men, with their 300 pitchers and their 300 little trumpets, before they seen the mighty victory, my, it was Gideon that the Lord, on the very day that he called him, he said, my young man, you need to raise an altar. And there it was Gideon who had ten men with him. And even in the night season, Gideon started to raise an altar unto the Lord. And my dear people, from my heart this morning, I want to ask you again, I'm asking you out of repetition that it would burn in your heart. I'm asking you out of repetition that you won't avoid the answer or you won't try to dodge the issue. I'm asking you this morning, how long has it been since you've raised the altar? Whenever Solomon built the temple, Whenever all of those wonderful stones and all of the gold was there, after all of the great work that had been invested for years and the money that had been poured in, the first thing that happened to the dedication of the temple was whenever Solomon stood at the altar. It was there where he prayed and cried unto God, and we know that it was there that the Lord came down. Above all of those men, there's men like David, there's men like Samuel, there's men like Jacob, there's men like even Isaac himself for all men of the altar. But there's one man that stands out above them all, and that is the man Abraham. Abraham was a man of the altar. Is it any but wonder he was called the friend of God? Is it any but wonder he's called the father of the faithful? This man that again in his life, again and again, he went back and built an altar unto the Lord. He didn't live on past experience. He didn't live in past blessing. He said, I must have a life that is up to date. And so again and again, he raised the altar unto the Lord. One of the things that concerns me the most that there's so many of God's people, they point back to the day when they were saved 20, 30 years ago. But it's been a long time since they've revisited the altar. 
It's been a long time since the glory has come down and filled her soul. Abraham wasn't like that. Abraham didn't diminish the blessing of God, but he wanted a blessing that was up to date. The first altar that we read about in Genesis chapter 12, there in the plain of Mori, it was there where the Bible says the Lord appeared unto Abraham where God came and manifest his presence to Abraham, this man that he called out of the air of the Chaldees, this man that worshipped demons, this man that was a heathen and a pagan, my, whenever he came out of the air of the Chaldees, down into the plain of Mori, the Lord appeared. On the Abraham and Abraham, the Bible says, built an altar. He built an altar there. It was a sacred place. And then we read in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8 that he moved. He moved from the plain of, of Mori. He moved again and he came between Bethel and Ai up on the mountain now. He said it was on the mountain and he's gaining ground with God, no longer in the plain. But now he's on the mountain slope and there between Bethel and Ai, the man of God, you know what he does? He starts to gather the stones. He lifts one stone from here, another stone from there. And my, he says, oh, I want to have a fresh encounter. And he raises the altar unto the Lord. And the Bible says he called upon the name of the Lord there. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 13, after the strife between Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen, after Lot went down to the plains of Jordan, the well-watered plains, Abraham lifts his tent again and he moves and he moves toward Hebron. And the Bible says it was there where he raised an altar unto the Lord. The word Hebron means fellowship. It means the place of communion. And here Abraham is going from the plain up into the mountain. And then he goes to the place of fellowship. Oh, there's nothing satisfies. He had so much gold. He had plenty of goods. But here was a man again and again and again. He needed to raise an altar unto the Lord. Then, of course, in Genesis chapter 22, it was there as an old man he lay. And suddenly God came again and told him to go into the land of Moriah. And my, he went three days' journey with the, with the darling of his bosom, that boy that he loved, that boy that meant everything to Abraham, and he climbed the side of Moriah. And there the Bible says he built an altar unto the Lord. He set the stones and then he put the wood in order. And there you'll know very well that Abraham had an encounter with God that he never had before. And he said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord does surely provide. It was the altar. It was a sacred place. Oh, my dear people, it's a safe place. Out of all the men that we read in the Bible that raised an altar, men like David, men like Jacob, men like Abraham, there was one man that never raised an altar, and his name was Lot. 
We never read of Lot raising an altar unto the Lord. And as a side effect of that, he ruined his family. He damned his wife and he lost his testimony. And oh, if only Lot had have done what his uncle Abraham had done, what a difference it would have made. Someone said, and I thought it was wonderful, whenever individuals stand at the altar, it is there that you can alter things. Whenever individuals stand at the altar, it is there that you can alter things. And I'm sure as Lot looked back on his life and saw the ashes of his wife, saw, as it were, the mark of a ruined testimony, I'm sure Lot would have said, Oh, oh, what a regret I have that I didn't raise. I didn't raise an altar. We hear of Samson's mother and father his father was a man by the name of Manoah. We don't know his mother's name, but even before Samson was born, my, this little family unit, a, a husband and a wife, you know what they did? The Bible says there, Manoah built an altar unto the Lord. And there, my, Manoah and his wife, they stood in the presence of the Lord and they prayed over the boy that wasn't even born as yet. And they said, Lord, how shall we order the child? Let me ask you a question today. Some of you husbands and wives, when was the last time you stood at the altar? When was the last time you gathered the stones and you said, Lord, my boy, my girl, they're going out into a lost eternity, Lord. But oh, thank God, if I build an altar, you can alter things. What about Job? Job, it says, early in the morning, he stood at the altar for his seven sons and his three daughters and he poured out his heart unto God. The altar is a safe place. And I'm giving an invitation. I'm not driving you into the prayer meeting tomorrow night. I'm not going to drive you into the prayer meeting this afternoon. I'm not going to drive you into the prayer meeting Wednesday night, but oh, I would love what a prayer meeting we would have tomorrow night or Wednesday night if everyone that is here now would come and say, Lord, I'm not depending on others praying for my children. I'm not depending, Lord, on the prayers of others, good though that may be. Lord, I myself down by the riverside, I'm going to gather the stones and I'm going to raise an altar unto God. It's a safe place. Oh, it's a sacrificial place. It costs a lot to stand at an altar. An altar is a place where you don't come to get. The altar is a place where you come to give. The altar is a place where you come and you give that which is rightfully the Lord's and you give it again unto Him. The altar is a place, oh, like the psalmist could say, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The reason why they did that, because sometimes the sacrifice slid off the altar. My dear people, you'll not take it as a rebuke this morning. I know you'll not. But there's some of you here, and you've slid off the altar. 
You've slid off the altar. Times when you used to be there. Times when ever my God was real. But you've slid off the altar. And that's why the psalmist said, bind it. Bind it with cords to the horns of the altar. You'll remember David, that man of God. And how there was pride came into his heart and he numbered the people. And now whenever Joab came back with the, with the number of the people, David's heart had said, smote him. And there the Lord came in judgment against the children of Israel. And my, the angel, that plague that came. And there it stood again on Mount Moriah, the very place where Abraham offered Isaac at Orion, his threshing floor. And you know what David did? The Bible says in the last chapter of Second Samuel, it was there where David built an altar unto the Lord. And that wonderful man that owned the threshing floor, he said to the king, he says, look, see all the bullocks, take them and sacrifice them. I'll give them to you. All of the wood that you need, sir, I'll give it to you. But David said this, my good man, oh, I cannot offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. It hasn't cost us a lot. But I tell you, there's a cost to carry in the cross. My dear people, there's a cost. Wasn't that the wonderful man of God? I've never met him. Maybe some of you did. And he penned that wonderful hymn, Go through with God, thy vows to pay. And all upon the altar lay. The Holy Ghost will do the rest and bring thee into God's very best. The price is high. Severe the test. For those who would enjoy God's best, surrender all and take the road with those who will go through with God. Ah, it's a sacrificial place. Let me ask you again. How long has it been since you've been there? How long has it been where you didn't come with a calf or a lamb, but you came upon the altar you put your will there. You bound it to the horns of the altar and say, Lord, I'm not willing, but I'm willing that you would make me willing. How long has it been since you've brought your ambitions and said, Lord, this is what I would love to do with my life, but Lord, if that's contrary to your will, I put my ambitions on the altar. How long has it been like he... Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren as the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. Say, Lord, I want you to take the living sacrifice. And I bind it with cords to the horns of the altar. I tell you, the Lord knew all about the altar. He did. He knew what it was to say, I've come to do the will of him that sent me. I tell you, he knew all about the cost when he said, I... I lay down my life and I take it up again. But lastly, the altar is not only a sacred place. It's not only a safe place. It's not only a sacrificial place. The altar is a supernatural place. You know, my dear people, someone said so many years ago, and they rightly said it, if what we possess and profess to have is not supernatural. It is then superficial. 
It's at the altar, my dear people, where God puts his super onto our natural. And there he fuses the two of them together. And as a result of the altar, you get God's supernatural. There's hardly a day, and I can say this before God, there's hardly a day, but I don't pray, Lord, bring me into the vast expanse of your supernatural blessing. The altar was a supernatural place. You know, my dear people, 38 times in the Word of God, you always get the little phrase, the altar and the blood. But 39 times, you get the altar and the fire. And that's why I say to you this morning, the two vital components in the life of any believer is the altar that we would be men and women that gather the stones and we stand at the altar and there we seek God and seek to have an encounter again with Him. And even as Elijah climbed Mount Carmel, you know the only thing that marked the difference between his altar and the altar of the false prophets. Because they also had an altar and they also had a bullock. But the one mark of demarcation on Mount Carmel was this. There was one altar that had a supernatural intervention. The false prophets of Baal. Oh, they had the stones. Oh, yes, they had the sacrifice. But whenever Elijah climbed Mount Carmel and he repaired the altar and he prepared the sacrifice and he put all the pieces on the altar. You know all it took to bring revival in, in the nation of Israel? 63 words. He didn't pray for an hour. He didn't pray and tell everybody everything that he knew. He didn't quote hymns in his prayer. He didn't quote great theological points in his prayer. Oh, he said, oh Lord, Lord, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. And you know what happened? The Bible says then, then the fire fell. There's no substitute, my people. There's no substitute for that moment in the life when God ignites the heart where, oh, that dry existence like stubble is dry and it's theological in all of its points and even in all of its positions. But there comes a moment where God takes the dry kindling of your life and he sets the divine fire to your heart. Oh, my dear people, and he starts something in your life that will never, never satisfy you again. Oh, my dear people, God can start a fire. And he can start it in your heart. Samuel Chadwick, that man of God, he said the supreme need of the church is fire. He said when we lose the fire of Christian experience, the smoke of religion and tradition takes its place. He went on to say that the supreme symbol of the church is not a cross. Oh, I tell you, the cross is a picture of death. The cross is a curse. My dear people, the cross is not a picture of the church. The picture of the church is a fire. A fire. 
Whenever those 120 men and women in the upper room lay on God's altar for 10 days, Lord, we're here, we're yielding, we're available, and for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 days, they tied their sacrifice to the horns of the altar. You know what happened, my dear people? It was then there was a sound from heaven, and it was then that the fire fell. They were never the same again. Oh, they did stumble after that. Oh, yes, certainly they led the Lord down after that. But oh, that was a pivotal moment in their life where they were never, ever the same again. William Booth, that man that was kicked out of the Methodist church, him and Catherine started to preach in Cornwall. And after three months, they seen 7,000 souls saved. The Methodist church and the leadership of the Methodist then were filled with so much venom and envy against them that they closed all the pulpits of the Methodist church to William and Catherine Booth. And whenever the Methodists kicked them out, you know what happened? God took them up. And there's some of you here, even recently, God has, has set you free and he, he wants to take you into a new place. And there's a little text that's found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 3. It became the battle cry of, of the Salvation Army. You know what it was? Blood and fire. Blood and fire. Oh, he could say we need the fire. Whenever the Paschal Lamb was slain in Exodus chapter 12, and the blood was on the lintel and the side post. You know what happened after the blood was applied? They had to roast the lamb in the fire. Whenever God sought to set a million and a half people free out of the bondage of Egypt, he got a man on the backside of the wilderness and he started a fire. And there it was Moses. He looked at that bush that was on fire. And God commissioned him and changed him and made him the meekest man of all the earth. God, my dear people, set a fire. In Leviticus chapter 9, whenever the brazen altar was made for the tabernacle, and Moses, he came with his, his brother Aaron and they put the sacrifice on the altar. You know what happened? The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 9, it was there that fire came out from the presence of the Lord through the veil, through the inner sanctuary. And there God, it was God's fire. He ignited a fire on the altar. Oh, my dear people, I'm not here to tell you to work yourself up. I'm not here today to try to get you to swing from the lights and look for some experience that won't last. But oh, whenever God does the work, whenever God lights a fire in your heart. Oh, I'm sorry for shouting this morning, but that burns in my own heart. My dear people, can I say, I'm not living in what I know. I don't know very much. But I'm glad there was a day God started a fire. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad there was a day where he took all of my dry theology. I'm glad there came a day when he took all of my dry convictions. And it's good to have convictions. But oh, my dear people, he needs to set them convictions afire. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord. And there, my dear people, it was the place of the supernatural whenever Solomon dedicated the temple Again, and he stood and he prayed that great revival prayer. The Bible says, then, then the fire of the Lord fell. The fire fell. The fire fell. You look for a little moment as we come to a close. 
And look at just for a moment there, again in 1 Kings in chapter 18. And you'll see in verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. The sacrifice speaks of the flesh. You know, my dear people, when the fire falls, He'll burn the flesh. That flesh would just stay on the altar. It would rot. That carcass would be there. It would be obnoxious after a number of hours in the eastern sun. That flesh would become full of maggots and flies. Oh, but when God touched the flesh with the fire, the flesh that gets agitated, the flesh that criticizes, the flesh that is so prone to wonder, oh, whenever God, the Bible, he, he worked down. The first thing that the fire hit was the flesh. The second thing that the fire touched, look at verse 38, that says, And the wood, and a tree has its roots down on the earth, and the wood speaks about carnality. Carnality. My dear people, you can't suppress carnality. You can try and hedge it into a corner of your life and you can try to keep it in a cupboard like a man and try and close the door. But carnality will always be there. It will always be there until the fire comes. Because the fire consumed the flesh. It consumed the wood. But it went on and it consumed the stones. You know what stones speak about? Hindrance. Hindrances. I don't know what hindering you this morning. I don't know what will be going through your mind even as I'm speaking to you now, but that, there's that massive boulder in your life and you, you've tried to roll it out of the way by singing choruses and you've tried to bury it by going to meetings and you've tried to hide it and even paint over it by, by doing all of the religious things. That stone, that boulder, that opposition will always be there until the fire comes. Fire. And then it touched the water. And the water always speaks of a thirst, of unhealthy appetites, of desires that are not in line with the Lord. And here the fire fell. Whenever the fire fell upon Thomas, it burnt up his doubt. Whenever the fire fell upon Peter, it burnt up his fear. Whenever the fire fell upon John, one of the sons of thunder, it burnt up his prejudice whenever he's going to call fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. Whenever the fire fell upon Matthew, it burnt up his pride. Whenever the fire fell upon Simon the Salad, it burnt up his bigotry. Whenever the fire fell upon James, it burnt up his self-importance and he became James the less. Do you need the fire? Is there something this morning that would witness to your heart? And while you may not even theologically agree with me, there's something that is pulling you in your heart, says Stephen. That is what I have been searching for from the day that I got seen. And the fire fell, and Jim Elliot, whenever he went out as that martyr before he got on the plane, he was reading through Hebrews chapter 1. And it says he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And Jim Elliot, just a number of hours before he was martyred, and he got on that little plane and went out there into the south of Brazil, he got down on the runway and he said, Lord, would you ignite this life? You know what happened? God struck a match. And we're still talking about him today. The fire fell. Oh, the fire consumes, the fire cleanses. 
Do you remember the young believers of Thessalonica? They were wonderful Christians. In fact, Paul, he said in 1 Thessalonians, he said, you know, oh, I commend you in your labor of love and your, your work of patience and all of those lovely aspects about your life. He says, you, you've preached the gospel and it's gone beyond Macedonia, beyond I care that whenever we come, we don't even need to preach the gospel because you're so good at evangelism. In chapter 2, he starts to lay before these young believers and he says, you know, I want to come and see you. I have a desire in my heart, he says, I greatly desire to see your faith, but Satan hindered me. The only time where we read of Paul being hindered, not by a demon, but by the devil himself. Why was that? In chapter 3, he says, Oh, I'm praying night and day that I might exceed your face. I'm praying that God would direct my way unto you. He says, to present you unblameable before the Lord in holiness. Chapter 4, he went on and said, This is the will of God for you. Even your sanctification for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And after Paul tries to get through to these young believers and Satan hinders him, the word is there, he puts a barricade in front of me. Paul drops on his knees. I would love to have seen him. He pushes the scroll to one side. He throws the pen to the other side. And this old saint of God, he gets down on his knees in the dust and he says, I pray. The God of peace, sanctify you holy, your spirit, your soul, and your body. You know what that means? God does the work from the inside out. The center of your being is your spirit. That place where God resides. Your soul is your personality. Your body is what we have today. God wants to come on the inside and work to the outside. Oh, my dear people, the Levites, and with this I close, the Levites were wonderful men. They washed their hands and feet every day. They had to go to the laver and they had to wash with the water and they washed their hands and they washed their feet. But we read in Malachi chapter 3 that the Lord talks about the Levites, a picture of you and I today, a royal priesthood. He says, I will come as the refiner's fire, as a purifier of silver, and I will purge the sons of Levi that they may offer a sacrifice in holiness. You get a bit of metal, you can wipe the dirt off it with a cloth. But you can't get the defilement out of it until you put it through the fire. The inward defilement. Whenever Paul was on the island, whenever they lit the fire, it was then that the viper came out. The holiness of God. The Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and he said, you take so much time on the outside of the cup. But he says, first cleanse that which was, is within Refining fire, go through my heart, illuminate my soul. Scatter thy life through every part and sanctify the whole. Amy Carmichael, that little woman, maybe only five foot tall, blazed the trail for the Lord through India. She always wanted blue eyes, but the Lord gave her brown eyes. She prayed, oh, for a passionate passion for souls. Oh, for a pity that yearns. Oh, for the fire that burns in my heart. Oh, for a love that yearns. The fire of God. 
It was Bramwell Booth who penned that wonderful hymn, Thou Christ, the burning cleansing flame. Send the fire, thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire, look down and see this waiting host. Send us the promised Holy Ghost, we need another Pentecost. Send the fire, to burn up every trace of sin. Send the fire, to let the light and glory in. Send the fire, oh, it was the fire to make our weak hearts strong and brave. Send the fire. To live a dying world to save, send a fire, oh, see us on the altar lay. Our lives are all this very day. To crown the offering now we pray. Send a fire, Lord. Send a fire. There's one thing that the Lord told Moses concerning the fire. He says, whenever I light it, you keep it burning. In Leviticus chapters 3 and 16 and 3, he says this. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. And there's some of us here this morning, my dear people, the fire's gone out. It went from the fire to the smoke, but there's just ashes there now. No light. No heat. I'm going to do something this morning that I have never done before. And I most probably will never, ever do again. I'm going to sing... A few words that the Lord gave me the other morning. And the reason I'm going to sing them is because I'm not a good singer, but I want you to listen to the words. Maybe this would be the reality of your heart. Oh, blessed Lord, I come to Thee with broken contrite heart and ask alone that thou would come and cleanse my inward part that thou would come and purge me now by thine own sacred flame and sanctify the inward part and magnify thy name Thy precious blood can cleanse each stain and make me free from sin. Thy Holy Spirit now abides His presence so sweet within. Come all ye saints and enter in and full salvation know. The blood that flowed on Calvary's hill Still washes white as snow.
Oh, enter in by faith alone and rest on Canaan's shore. The life that thou hast known for years, thou now shalt know no more. The double mind, the unclean heart, oh, the fire and blood will purge. And once the vessel is sanctified, oh, then his power will surge to more. His own dear image he then will stamp upon the life you live. And victory over every sin his blood will surely give the sacred flame will ne'er go out within the heart made clean and God alone be and Christ alone be seen. Amen. Is that your prayer this morning? Something in your heart? Pulling? Lord, start a fire, Lord. I'm going to ask our brother Bertie to pray. And then I'm going to ask Roy and Adrian to pray. And then what we're going to do is our meeting is over. And the reason I'm asking these men to pray is that they would pray the Word of God into our heart, that that would be the reality of every life here this morning. That God, take this dry Christian experience and send the fire. Brother Bertie. Our Father, we come into thy presence in the light what we have been hearing. And our Father, we thank you for the Holy Ghost fire. Yes, Lord. Burns up every trace of sin. Amen. Let's the light and glory in. And as Booth penned the revelation, the revolution now begin. Send the fire. There's a fire we need for the fire we need. For the fire meet your every need. And Father, we pray, Lord, our God, this morning for those here sitting, that the fire may be rekindled again in their life and in their soul. For oh God has been not more than smoke and ashes, but there'll be a real flame burning. That flame burning, Lord, in a morning, evening, and night. Amen. 
a flame that wants to be drawn closer to Him, a flame that will draw sin into prayer, into prayer, a flame that will, oh God, fire us up every moment of the day, and we thank Thee that it will indeed cleanse from every sin. We thank you this victory in Jesus this morning. There's power in the blood of the Let the fire fall. Lord God, our Father, we come. We offer ourselves on the altar of sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that for the, oh God, the altar has, the sacrifice has gone off. We thank you that the Old Testament economy, they had flesh leaks that pulled them back on again. Oh God, that is, they have sacrificed back on again. Lord, that it might be consumed. We give our life to Thee. What else can we do, Lord? Mm. And submit all into Your hand. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Father of heaven, we say Amen to our brother's prayer, to our brother's peace. Father, as Your Word says, hear me. O oh Lord, hear me. But this people may know that thou art the Lord God. Amen. And that thou hast turned their heart back to him. Lord, we pray that you people rule and rule in our hearts.
You'll only keep it lit by obedience to the word of God. My dear people, you need to go on. If somebody here, God has something for you. You're sitting on the sideline. May the Lord this morning take us where he wants us.